You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John chapter 6. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last time, verse 60. John 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Heavenly Father, we look to you now, Father, if we are to profit from this reading, if we are to profit, Father, from your word, then we do require your grace. We pray, oh, Father, you be pleased to teach us this morning to open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts, Father. We pray that, Lord, you'll meet each of us where we are. Give to us understanding. Give to us that which we require this morning, Lord. We may see you all the more clearly. And we may let go of more and more of our of our sin and Father, we pray that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you uh, notice that when we start reading like midstream like that in verse 60, how you're kind of lacking the context? And that's what I've been talking about. It seems like such an artificial place to start and stop. And in many respects, it is because as I've said through the whole course of this, uh, John 6 really has to be kept together as one one piece, if you will. And all of these starts and stops have been, in some respects, a bit artificial. And what I want, what I want to do this morning, this being the fourth message in John chapter 6, what I want to do this morning is really kind of recap where we've been. Uh, let's stand back and let's, uh, let's look at where we've been and, and then we'll reach a conclusion this morning. Does that make sense? Hopefully it'll be as clear as pure water, not mud, but We'll try to make it as clear as we can, okay? Um, if you look back to verse 1, John chapter 6, verse 1, there we find Jesus sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And, of course, you know, I've been, you know, my position on this is he's on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He sails to the eastern side. Some of them say, well, that seems kind of like a mute point. But believe it or not, if you turn to commentaries, you can find a lot of ink spilled over that. Um, I think they're on the western side. They're sailing to the eastern side. And as many of you know, 
The uh, other gospel writers record this story, this event as well. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the feeding of the 5,000. And from the uh, information that we get from some of the other gospel writers, uh, we get a little bit of the context uh, that's taking place here. Why uh, are Jesus and his disciples sailing across the Sea of Galilee? Well, we know that they have been so hard-pressed with with ministry, it's become so hard-pressed upon them that they've hardly had any time to even eat. So they're beat down from the uh, duty of ministry, if you will. And secondly, uh, the announcement of the execution of John the Baptist has reached their ears. So they're grieving about the execution of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod. And um, Jesus um, says, come on, let's get into the Let's get into the boat. Let's cross uh, the Sea of Galilee. And we don't get as much of this in John's gospel. We don't have a whole lot of detail about the northern ministry of Jesus, namely his ministry in in Galilee, like we do, say, in Matthew uh, or uh, Luke or Mark. But, you know, when you read the other gospels, you see they're constantly sailing across the Sea of Galilee. I didn't realize how much that they were doing until a few years ago when we preached through Matthew's gospel. It seemed like every time you turned around, they're back in the boat. And I concluded from that something that I, you know, it's conjecture on my part, but I think it's, I think it's reasonable is that's probably the only time they got a break was when they were in the boat, you know? (laughs) And I, I think that's what's going on here. They're getting in the boat and and they're getting a little break, and I think what's... Obviously, Jesus knows what's going to happen, but um, they're getting a some respite uh, from the crowds. And we're told in verse 2 that a large crowd was following Him, and we need to hang on the details that follow that because they saw the signs that He was doing. They saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. I've made a lot about that because it's important that we grasp that if we're going to understand this at all. They saw the signs. They saw that he was healing the sick. I mean, that's, that's what they're in it for. They're, they're seeing all of these things that Jesus can do and all of these things that Jesus can do for them. And as Jesus and his disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee, uh, they travel on foot up over the northern shore and around to the other side to meet him. They take that, that arduous journey, if you will, on foot to meet him on the other side. And we're told in verse 3 that when Jesus reaches the other side, he goes up, sits down with his disciples. We know that he's teaching and that he's praying. And in verse 5, Jesus lifts up his eyes and he sees that large crowd coming towards him. And this is a a place where I think a lot of us, if we want to really get down in the text, how would you feel at this point about a large crowd? You're trying to get a little bit of time away. And here we really see the heart of Jesus. Jesus. You know, Jesus sees this large crowd coming, and he has compassion on them. And the real amazing thing is, Jesus is full aware that their faith is spurious, that their faith is superficial, that they're only following him because of what he can do for them. Yet he still has compassion on them. The other gospel writers tell us that his heart goes out to them because he saw them as as sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion. And we also see, not only we see the compassion of Jesus in these verses, we see his nurturing nature in these verses. If you look at verse 5, Jesus says to Philip, one of the disciples, he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
Now, Jesus is concerned on a couple of fronts here. One, the day is growing old. He doesn't want to dismiss this crowd with no food because he realizes they haven't eaten anything all day. And they've got this journey. Um, they could faint on the way. Uh, he truly has compassion on them. He cares for them. And he's also testing Philip. He wants to uh, uh, strengthen Philip's faith, if you will. And he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, try to imagine this. We know that there are approximately 5,000 men here, plus women and children. And uh, Jesus is saying, hey, hey, Philip, where, where are we going to get some bread to feed all these folks? And Philip answers, like, listen, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them. In other words, a denarii was approximately a day's wage for the average labor. 200 days of work wouldn't buy enough food to feed all these folks. And here we can kind of see, you know, how it's easy for us as readers of the gospel to look down and say, Philip, who do you think you're with? I mean, what's Philip doing? He's just looking through worldly lenses, isn't he? He's failing to grasp who he's with. He's failing to grasp the extraordinary and really unlimited power of Jesus and who Jesus is. And Andrew jumps in. This is Peter's brother. And you, you almost wonder where Peter is. He's always the one jumping in, but he's not jumping in here. It's his brother jumping in. And he says, well, we got a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. That's verse 9. But how, what's that for so many people? Again, you see, they're, they're, they're really kind of locked in and seeing everything um, through worldly lenses here. Um, uh, what does Jesus do? Well, he has the people sit down in an orderly fashion in verse 10. Then Jesus in verse 11 takes the loaves. He gives thanks for them, and he begins to distribute them to all who were seated, and we're told that they ate as much as they wanted. And that when they had finished eating in verse 12, Jesus gave them instructions to gather up what was left over. And in verse 13, they gathered up and filled 12 baskets full with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Well, of course, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the God who provides. Uh, this is not a problem uh, for him uh, whatsoever. And, you know, it, what, uh, if we could make some application of this right now, a lot of times uh, we kind of forget that the, strength of, or that the strength of the Lord's people is the Lord himself. And how often when we're in trouble, do we go about it as if we don't have the strength of the Lord? We act like, uh, like he's not there. And here we see the disciples doing exactly the same thing. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When they saw the sign, in other words, when they saw the miracle, they proclaimed, this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, what are they referring to? They're referring to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, aren't they? Where Moses said approximately 1,500 years earlier that after me would come a prophet like me, and to him you shall listen. And they're right. The crowds are right in this. They're, they're correct. Jesus is, a, Jesus is a fulfillment of that prophecy. But notice what Jesus does in verse 15. He perceives that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king. And he withdraws from them by the mountainside. Here's an extraordinary amount of grace that Jesus is giving them. They want to make him king. Why? I mean, phew, you know, not only does he heal all the sick, but 
you know, you can get, uh, you know, you, you can forget about the grocery store too. Uh, we could forget about the fields. We could forget about, I mean, he, look how he's miraculously fed us. What's the problem? The problem is they're after Jesus for what they can get from Jesus. And there's an incredible lesson here for those who are in Christian leadership too. Because Jesus will not leave them like that. I mean, unfortunately, today we have a lot of people that are in leadership that won't say anything from the pulpit that would, uh, you know, for fear that people are going to leave. Over and over again, we see Jesus. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back from controversial issues. He doesn't hold back from sharing the gospel. He doesn't hold back from any of these strong truths because he loves the people, and he refuses to leave them in darkness. He's perceiving that they're about to take him by force to make him king. He withdrew from him. He gives instructions in verse 16 when his disciples, uh, he said, we know from the other gospel writers that um, he gives them instructions to sail back across the Sea of Galilee. There's only one, one boat. They get in that one, that singular boat. They go across to the other side. Jesus goes up on the hillside to pray. The uh, crowds are dismissed. And um, at one point, Jesus decides to join them. And, you know, if you, missed, if you missed your boat, well, then you just simply walk across the water, right? Is that what you do? I mean, he literally walks across uh, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we know that... Um, he could have easily walked across the sea and met them on the other side and left them to wonder how he got to the other side. But instead, he, he, he rendezvous with them. We know from the other accounts that his intentions were to keep going right on past, but when they see him, they're frightened because they think they see a ghost. Now, what's the point of all of that? Well, the, 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 the sea is storm-tossed, if you will, and here comes Jesus literally walking on the, on the waters, what is Jesus doing? He's demonstrating his sovereignty over the water. He's commanding the water to support his body. It's not a problem for him. The water has to answer to him. But there's something else, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago. In the Scriptures, the sea and a storm-tossed sea, if you will, is emblematic of sin and chaos and darkness. And by Jesus walking on those waves. He is therefore showing that he is putting this chaos, this darkness, under his feet. It's absolutely extraordinary. And why, why is he doing this? This is a lesson for the 12. You guys are missing it. You proved back there when I asked you to feed everybody that you're missing it. I want to demonstrate to you who I am. I command even the waters. Only God could do that. He's demonstrating his deity to the disciples uh, very clearly. Now, it's the next day in verse 22, and the crowd's perplexed. I mean, they, they see the boat's gone. They knew the disciples left by themselves. They realized that Jesus stayed, but they can't find him. And they're scratching their heads, and all they can conclude is, well, he must be on the other side. In the meantime, other boats are showing up. They get in the boats. They sail across to Capernaum on the other side. And in verse 25, when they find him on the other side of the sea, they say to him, Rabbi, which simply means teacher, when did you come here? 
And notice what Jesus says. See, this is, this is why this is such a lesson for leadership in the church. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're, not, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you got your bellies filled up. So he just refuses to leave them in that darkness, doesn't he? He's challenging them. You're here because of your belly. You're here because you ate the loaves. And, you know, I, I made a point, a couple of times I've made a point that, you know, today, I mean, if again, I just, you know, restate what I've said earlier. If, if somebody walked from Wellsville in this kind of weather to come here this morning, we, what would we conclude? We, we would conclude this is... This really is, a, I mean, that's commitment uh, to, walk in the, to walk from Wellsville to here. But our hearts are exposed before the one who can see, aren't they? They're wide open before. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. And he realizes that they're exhibiting faith, but it's not the kind of faith that saves he says in verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. What's he saying there? I've said a couple of times, you know, your life pursuit is all about the wrong thing. You're on about the wrong thing. And how badly we need that message. How, how often do we get off course and we get our life's, our life's pursuit uh, all mixed up to where suddenly we find our life's pursuit no longer is Christ's glory. Our life pursuit is no longer about Jesus. You see, that's, I think, one of the overarching messages of John chapter 6 is this thing's got to be about Jesus. It's got to be about Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't get up tomorrow morning and go to work. We do. But our life's pursuit, the overarching pursuit of our life and all that we do needs to be fundamentally and principally about Jesus. How often do we get upside down on that? I mean, there isn't a one of us, I think, that could say, you know, my life's, ever since I come to know Jesus, my life's been on about him 100%. Really? Mine hasn't. I'll be the first one to raise my hand. I get off the course from left to the right. I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not alone. We need this lesson over and over and over again. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Well, they, they like this. Oh, you're going to give us something to do. Well, we'll get busy doing it. Verse 28, just show us, Lord, what, what, do we do? what must we do to be doing the works of God? I mean, if we are. I mean, if we could just do something and get to heaven based on, we're ready to do that. I mean, there's, there's this principle in our hearts that's just ready to go, ripping and tearing, earning our way to heaven, isn't there? We've got to fight against that all the time. Notice how Jesus answers. He says, he says in verse 29, this is the work that you uh, that you must do, that you believe in him and whom he sent. And uh, last week especially, I was bringing out how often the, the word belief or coming or trusting or abiding occurs in this passage. See, it's coming to Jesus. It's, it's all about Jesus and all about embracing Jesus with this living faith. That's what this is all about. Yeah, okay, they respond in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as is written. He gave them bread uh, from heaven to eat. And they're making a reference to their fathers wandering around in the wilderness as manna came from heaven. Now, you can read about that in Exodus if you're not familiar with it. And 
they attributed that to Moses. And Jesus corrects them in verse 32. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, then, uh, they're ready. Give us this bread. Give us this bread. Just show us, just show us this bread. And Jesus says to him, I'm the bread. It's me. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you look down at verse 41, you see the reaction to that. They grumble. No, they're not grumbling because he said that he's the bread. They're grumbling because he said he's the bread from heaven. So wait a second. This is Joseph and Mary's boy, isn't it? He didn't come from heaven. He came from Nazareth. You can almost hear it in a contemporary term, right? That's that boy from, that's that boy from Wellsville, isn't it? He says he's from heaven. What happened? Has he been in the sun too long? I mean, he could do some extraordinary things, but from heaven? Really? They're grumbling about him. Jesus, knowing their hearts. Verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. Tells them not to grumble. Verse 49, your fathers ate, in the, ate the man in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And you see, verse 51 really begins to give us some keys into understanding this whole metaphor of bread, doesn't it? Especially this idea of eating the bread. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What is Jesus pointing to? He's pointing to the cross. The word became flesh and dwell among us. John chapter 1 verse 14, right? For the express purpose of living that perfect life so that this human body could be offered on the cross. My flesh could be given for the life of my people. Now then the Jews, verse 52, be disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're taking him literally. They're not taking him figuratively here. They're taking him literally. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, this is verse 53, unless you, and notice, before I even read that verse, notice how he doesn't turn it down. See, this is again another message for for leadership in the church. He's not turning it down. He's turning it up. We have this temptation of, oh, we better turn it down. We better turn it down. He, Jesus turns it up. Notice what he says in verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. That word abide is another, cl- is another clue in understanding this. John will use that in John, in John 15. Jesus uses the exact same word that's translated abide. In the Greek, it's the word meno. When Jesus calls us to abide in him, he says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. How do we abide in Jesus? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means to come to him in a saving faith and trust, doesn't it? 
So what is this, what is this metaphor about? What does it mean to eat the flesh of Jesus? It means to embrace his death on the cross in our place with a living faith, doesn't it? That's what it means. And what does it mean to drink his blood? This would have been repugnant to the early church, wouldn't it? Because in the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the whole notion of uh, blood, you know, they, they had to be, uh, they couldn't eat meat, if you will, if the blood was still in it. The blood had to be drained. For the blood is the life of the creature, if you will. And the emblem here, uh, drinking his blood, what is the blood all about? The blood is about the death. The shedding of blood means the dying. It's about the death of Jesus. How are we to understand this? We're to understand this in atonement categories. And this is really important, by the way, because it's possible for us to see Jesus dying in our place because he loves us yet getting all hung up that our sin has been taken away. Some of you will be like, what do you mean by that? I am an example of one who stumbled on that. When I was first coming to Christ in a saving way, I believed that I needed Jesus to save me. I believed that Jesus could save me, but I had a lot of trouble believing that he wanted to. A lot of trouble believing that really, I mean, this sin of mine, you're really going to take it away? That's the whole idea of drinking the blood here. It's a metaphor. It's got barbs on it, doesn't it? I mean, especially for us, if we would have been first century, uh, first century Jews, and as we see, as Jesus continues after verse 60, it's, it's barbed a little bit. That might become clear here in a few minutes. But to drink his blood, what does that mean? That means that his death on the cross literally did take our sins away. To drink his blood, to eat his flesh means he dies in our place. He he gave his body for us. To drink his blood means that by his death we have been cleansed. Does that make sense? You see how we got to grasp both? I can't tell you how many people I've counseled over the years who've had trouble with this. Where in one breath they'll say, I know Jesus died for me, I know Jesus died for me. Yet they have never let go of the guilt of their sin. Why? Because they're failing on this point to see that that shed blood takes away those sins. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's so important that we grasp both of these things. And it's right now where I wish the masks were off so I could see everybody's face. Just to see, you know, is there anybody I need to talk to after the service here? Because you can get stumbled. You can stumble on this. And it, 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 it's a matter of life and death, by the way, stumbling on this one. And we're not talking about baptism here, whether we baptize infants or not. We're not talking about something that's secondary, important but secondary. We're talking about things that are primary. So it's important that we we grasp that. Now, um, if you look at verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And why would they say it's a hard saying? Because they're taking him literally. They're saying, you want us to eat your flesh? You want us to drink your blood? This is repugnant to us. 
They're taking him literally. They're missing it. But notice Jesus, he's reading their hearts again. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. He didn't hear them grumbling. He knew in his heart that they were grumbling. He knows what's in the hearts of all of us. He knows that they're grumbling. And notice what he says. He says at the end of verse 61, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, they're taking offense at this. And then in verse 16, he says something that's a bit perplexing. He says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? (laughs) You know, if you were puzzled over this eating the flesh and drinking the blood, I'm not sure that would have shed a lot of light on it, would it? Yeah, maybe like, whoa, uh, (laughs) what is he saying there? I suppose on one sense, in one sense, we could say, well, all right, if you're stumbling now, you're going to get it when you see me ascend to heaven. That's one way we could take it. There's another way that we could take it, and we would have to ask a couple of questions in order to, uh, in order to see this. And one chief and principal question would be this. What major event exists between where Jesus is as he speaks these words and his ascension into heaven? What is the big event that exists? It's the crucifixion, isn't it? And he could be saying this. If you're taking offense over me saying, you, you know, unless you, eat, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, can't, you cannot have eternal life. If you think that's offensive, wait until you see the cross. Because the idea of a Messiah hanging on the cross is, has to be even more repugnant than what Jesus is saying here, doesn't it? And I always like it, you know, when you have a, you have to, like, when you, you think you have to make a choice, like, does it have to be the first or the second? Sometimes what's really cool is you can actually say it could be both. I always love it when it's that way. Actually, it could be both. And it could be, it could, for, for some, I mean, the disciples see the ascension of Jesus, don't they? They see the ascension of Jesus. Does that strengthen their faith? Absolutely it does. In fact, an angel explains to them what's going on. What are you guys looking up for? You know, an angel is dispatched from heaven in order to instruct them, to strengthen them, to help them figure out what's happening. So we can say, yeah. But let's think about how the crowds, how do they respond to Jesus hanging on the cross? Or how do many of the first century people respond to the gospel as it's proclaimed? And the whole idea of a Messiah dying naked upon a Roman cross. It's repugnant, isn't it? I think in this case we could could say both. And verse 64 I think uh, adds light to that. Well, verse 63, let's not skip that. Jesus continues. He says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Boy, so much is going on. We probably could have just spent the whole morning on this single verse. There's so much going on in that verse. He says it's the Spirit who gives life. And most of us, I think, in this room understand that we cannot have... The flesh is no help at all. We cannot... I mean, in one sense, we understand that, but a lot of times we can actually be caught trying to earn our salvation. It's, all, it's like in one sense, we understand it. If we were to be examined on it, we'd get the question right on the exam. But then when you follow us around and you watch the way we work, sometimes maybe we don't understand it as well as we think uh, when we're found trying to 
earn our way to getting God's good favor. And Jesus is saying, listen, here, the flesh is no help at all. Uh, you guys want something to do. I mean, if I gave you something to do, you'd be busy doing it. In fact, you walked all the way across the northern shore to see me on the eastern side, and then you sailed across the Sea of Galilee to see me again. And like, These guys, you just give them something to do, and I don't doubt they're going to be busy doing it. And I don't doubt that they'd be very disciplined in doing it. But Jesus is saying, listen, your flesh is no help at all. And Jesus is picking up on a conversation that he had with, with Nicodemus. If you go back to John chapter 3, and you look at this encounter with Nicodemus, it's been many weeks since we were all the way back there, but there Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, says to him, Rabbi, we know, this is verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, he sees the signs. And he's coming out to see Jesus, to talk to him about something. Nicodemus has something on his mind. His question is never recorded for us, but he has something on his mind. And if you remember, I conjectured that his question could have been the same question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or perhaps this morning as I was going over this, thinking this through, I was thinking, you know, there's another question that perhaps he was asking, and it might have been, when is the kingdom of God coming? That's a possibility as well. Because really, these guys thought that their biggest problem was Rome. They thought their biggest problem was Rome. Like today, we might be inclined to think our biggest problem is health insurance. It's a problem. I don't want to diminish it, but if we think our biggest problem is health insurance, we have no idea how much trouble we're in. I mean, as I was saying Wednesday, I mean, our situation is so grave. I mean, on Wednesday we were looking at the doctrine of original sin. And I don't want to go into all of that, but catechism question number 18 gives us a little bit of info on that. And what kind of mess are we in? I mean, we're guilty as we're born into this world because we share in the guilt of Adam's first sin. Right? When he sinned, all humanity fell with him. So before we do anything, we are already guilty. And then we're lacking the want of the original righteousness that Adam had in the garden before he sinned. So we're lacking that. It's sinful to not have that, by the way. And then what about the corruption? You ever notice how none of us, I say this all the time, none of us had to be taught to be bad. We don't put up schools to teach us how to be bad. I mean, I should say maybe there are schools out there that would teach you to be bad. And forget that. It might be a bad illustration today. I don't know. But you understand what I mean by that? This is the mess that we're in. The first century thought their biggest problem was Rome. We could, we could go on a whole list of things that we think is, we don't understand the kind of mess we're in. Jesus says to him in verse 3, this is John chapter 3, verse 3, speaking to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, look how fond he is of that statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time? And his mother, it's just right over his head. Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? When we were in that passage, I pointed to Ezekiel. We get that from Ezekiel 36 where God promises to wash us and we'll be clean. I will sprinkle you and you shall be clean. I'll put my spirit upon you. You will know my laws and you'll know you'll, you'll, uh, you, my laws will be written on your heart. 
Here it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So here we have the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go back to John chapter 6 and verse 63, Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. We're so dead in our sins, we can't, we can't do it. It's the Spirit who gives life. But notice what he says in the second line. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Think this through for a moment. When Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and he's fasted for 40 days, and Satan says to him, if you're really the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? What does he say? Famously, he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? Now, what is Jesus saying here? He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Only this time, He's saying it this way. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of Christ. Making himself equal with God. Which, that's one of the problems that people were, if you look back to chapter 5, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He is God. The Apostle Paul says this the same way, only it's, it's, it, takes, it takes a bit of meditation in order to work backwards with it. But Paul says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, doesn't he, in Romans 10? Think about that. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That's the same thing, isn't it? Man does not live on bread alone, but every, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of Christ. Or, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. How do we, how do we come to have eternal life? We come to have eternal life as the word or the gospel of Christ is preached to us, and the Holy Spirit accompanies that proclamation in our heart and opens up our eyes. Right? That's what John is developing here. That's what the Holy Spirit is developing here before us. In verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus, I'm back to John chapter 6 again. Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, uh, who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. You see, God is not some senile uh, character up in heaven just wishing he could bless us if we'd let him. No, he's completely sovereign over this whole thing, isn't he? He's not frustrated in any way, nor ever could he be frustrated in any way. He's God. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Look, they turned away. They turned away. See, this is the problem. This thing's about Jesus. 
And if we're following Jesus because of something we want from him, what is going to happen when we don't get what we want from him? We're going to fall away. This whole thing's got to be about Jesus. I can't tell you how many examples. I used an example, one young man, I think it was Wednesday night maybe, I don't know, remember now, or even if I was sharing it with somebody, in, I think Wednesday night I used an example of a man that we met across town. I don't remember looking at some of you. Maybe I didn't. I, I recently have shared it with somebody. I think it was, thought it was Wednesday night. But, but he wanted out of it. He was in trouble, and he wanted his hearing to go well. And I, I, I drove over town and picked him up and brought him to this service numerous times. And then his hearing came, and he, I mean, to everyone's surprise, he, he really... Um, he got out of the trouble he was in, and I saw him once after that at 7-Eleven. When I saw him, I was happy to see him, and I waved and started approaching him. He ran into the car. He fled away from me. Now, that doesn't mean it's over for him. God can use all of this, and I think God does use all this. I, I, I'm optimistic about this young man, but it's dangerous. We don't know it. The crowds... Yeah, one writer puts it this way. I think it might have been F.F. F. Bruce who put it this way. Jesus wouldn't give the crowds what they wanted, nor would they receive what he was offering. That's a rough quote from, I think, F.F. F. Bruce who said that. Do you think that through? He wouldn't give them what they wanted. Why? Because what they wanted was harmful for them. But nor would they receive what he is offering. And they fall away. So Jesus said to the twelve in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Now here's Peter. Here he is answering. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. No, Peter won't go. Peter won't leave. The, 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 the twelve do not leave. We know one of them is a devil. We know Judas Iscariot will betray him. But the other eleven won't leave. And here we get an idea of what true discipleship looks like, don't we? You see, it's all about Jesus. That's what I've been really saying through this whole message. They're in it for him. They're not in it to get their bellies filled up. They're... They, they are wrestling. We know, we know that they are wrestling with Rome. Rome is a big deal. But they're in it for him. And the amazing thing is Jesus knows full well that Peter, he, you know, you look at Peter's confession right here. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know. Does Peter really, does Peter really understand at this point? No, not. I mean, he does more so than he did, but he's still quite weak in his faith, isn't he? And we know that later Peter will deny Jesus three times, won't he? But he'll weep. He'll weep bitterly about it. And when he sees Jesus, what does he do? He jumps out of the boat and makes his way to Jesus. Why? Because he has a heart attachment, not to what Jesus can give him, but to Jesus himself. 
This is what it's got to be about. Not what Jesus gives us, but Jesus. I mean, this life's going to be full of disappointments. We already know that. We, we don't get everything we want, and we're not going to. So if we're in it just to get the things that we want, it's going to be a matter of time. We're going to fall away. But if we're in it for Jesus, then we're in it for good. I think the amazing thing here, so many things could be teased out of this. Let me just, let me just share just a couple more and I'll close. There Peter is weak in his faith. And again, we're thinking about the nurturing nature of Jesus and his ministry and his compassion. He knows Peter's going to deny him. And how does that help us at midnight when we wake up in the middle of the night and we think about a way that we've blown it in the course of the day? And we think about ourselves, how could I have done that? How can I have talked that way? How can I have conducted myself in this way? And we think we've got to earn our way back into God's graces. It's helpful to think about Peter here. Or we think about our weakness. It's helpful to think about Peter here. Not so that we will think about Peter, but so we will think about how the Lord treats Peter. How does the Lord treat Peter? Treats him with perfect love. He will, Peter will deny him, but he will restate Peter, won't he? Why? Because there's a principle in his heart that's about Jesus. That's why. There's a principle in his heart that's about Jesus. But where did that principle come from in the first place? It came from God. You see, it's all from God. You see what amazing God we have? You see how we can rest in him? In fact, we're not in him until we rest in him. We're not in him until we lay it down and we rest in him. But oh, how, what a safe, how often does he show us how safe of a place he is for us to rest in him? Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you and praise you, Father, for this story. We have so many things in John chapter 6 to instruct us, to help us, to comfort us, to, to rebuke us. Lord, so much of the time we come to you for what you could give us instead of coming to you for who you are and coming to you just to come to you, to be with you. Oh, Father, we pray you'll work in our hearts, oh, Lord, to expunge all of, the, all of the things that are wrong there, that, Father, you would fan into flame and you would cause to strengthen, Father, our, our hearts throb for you, Father. Make us to be a people who are just on about you and you alone. Oh, Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.